This last week I was thinking about Veterans Day, the weekend, and growing up in a military family, it's probably maybe a little more meaningful for me. I, as I was sharing a little bit of talking with Russell about the Navy and living overseas and that sort of thing. And for those of you who have served in the military, you've been trained in warfare. And that may not be seem to be like a, an enjoyable thing or a good thing, but it's a necessary thing for the protection of our country. The Bible likens the Christian life to living the Christian life, to walking with Christ as being a spiritual warfare. It's a metaphor used throughout Scripture. And the story that we've been looking at and with Moses and all of God's people leaving out of bondage and slavery and persecution in Egypt and being delivered from that through the wilderness and finally crossing the Jordan River and, and entering into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, is really, it's a, it's a real story, true story, but it also is a picture of a greater story. We've talked about that as showing the picture of salvation, of our spiritual deliverance. And we also see depicted the spiritual warfare that all of us are engaged in. And I'm sure that many of you felt that this week. Did you feel that this week? Some spiritual warfare? And sometimes you wonder, Lord, what's going on? Because you're trying to follow Christ, read your Bible, pray, do the right thing, follow the Lord, and now you're in the middle of a desert and you're being attacked by the enemy. What, what is, what's going on with that? And you struggle with what God is really doing in your life. Why is it that we're always in a warfare? Why is it that we're always in a fight? Well, I think, one, we live in a, a fallen creation. We talk about the world system, the cosmos that, that we live in, that we all live in, and that it, it affects us. A fallen world affects us. We also have a fallen flesh. We call sometimes the agony of humanity, that we've got to deal with our own selves, that experience. And we also have an enemy who is like Pharaoh, the prince of the power of the air, who is a person trying to destroy you. Satan has an agenda to try to take you out. Now, all of those things are happening. You think, but, but now that I'm a Christian, now that I believe, now that I'm a follower of Christ, shouldn't all of these things disappear and I just walk in peace and walk in joy and walk in harmony with the Lord and experience His blessing? Why is it that this last week, since last Sunday when we met, I've been engaged in spiritual warfare? And I think there's some reasons for that. If, if someone were to ask you, in, in the struggle, in the struggle of your Christian life, what are some good things God's doing? We've Recognize that verse in Romans 8, 28. It says, all things work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. Some things in and of themselves are not good. But God is working them for good. 
get my mic set here. I'm sorry about that. My wife tells me, don't touch your mic when you're speaking, but this thing's falling off, hon. That's what is happening. <laughs> what, what good things do you think take place when you're going through a struggle? I think, first of all, it drives you to Christ. Uh, I can tend to get a little bit lackadaisical about my relationship with the Lord when things are going well. And so I you say, Lord, I don't want problems. I don't want difficulties. But when God allows this in your life, particularly, and I, and I think this is consistent all through the Scripture, all through the Scripture, and you, you read these particularly in Exodus and through the prophets in the Old Testament, he says this, that they may know the Lord, that they may know the Lord. In other words, the Lord wants you to know him more fully, more experientially, in, in, a, in a deep, abiding way. <clears throat> and typically, that's not going to happen when everything is going well. These challenges should drive you to a more intimate and personal and real relationship. And that's really what God wants. Above all things, He wants with you a deep, abiding relationship. He created you for that. I think secondly, He makes you stronger. He brings you to maturity. He develops your life. You say, Lord, but I've been, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've really, I, I know enough now. <laughs> but you start to realize that there are still things that God is teaching you. And if you ever get to the point where you feel like, you know what, I'm set, I've, I've got this Christianity thing down pretty well, I'm mature, that just shows you're not. <laughs> there are things that God wants to build into you to make you stronger and a stronger faith. God has also given you greater capacity. Every experience that you go through gives you greater capacity to be able to help someone else. And you look at that through your life, the experiences, the difficulties, the trials, the hardships that you've been through. Now, you could have given someone advice before, probably, academic advice, but when you give advice out of your own personal experience, your own pain, you've been in that valley, you've felt those things, you know what that's like, God gives you greater capacity to help other people. You know, I mentioned those three, but there, there are a thousand other things that God's doing and bringing us to that. <clears throat> We're going to read a story this morning that to me is an incredible story. It's probably memorable because it's uh, pretty spectacular. But seeing how God works to win the victory in the battle through his people. And we find this in Exodus chapter 17. Let me just kind of give you a little background of what's taking place uh, before we start reading. But uh, Moses has led the children of Israel out of, out of Egypt. They've crossed over the Red Sea. They're now into this uh, Arabian Peninsula, which is a, a very desert place. And they're moving toward the promised land. They're heading up to, to the promised land that God has uh, prepared for them. And they're going to face an enemy. And the name of the enemy is the Amalekites. And it's interesting about the Amalekites. They come from Amalek. If you go, if you go back to Genesis, you remember there's Abraham, who is the first father of faith. Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had two sons named 
Jacob, and Esau. So typically we go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, Jacob had a brother named Esau, and Esau had a grandson named Amalek. And so all of the Amalekites that are in this area have come really from Abraham, Isaac, not Jacob, but Esau. And Esau was really the one who did not follow the Lord. He did not believe. He, he separated himself from his family. He did not go the way of faith. And, and so Esau's descendants were not followers of God. So <clears throat> Amalek is born, all these descendants, and the, the Amalekites were marked by being people that were on this uh, Arabian uh, Peninsula area, all this desert area. They had... Um, domesticated camels that were incredibly fast. And what they would do for a living is rob people. They would, they would go and whoever's coming through the desert, they just go wipe them out, take all their goods. That's what they did. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I never really understood, I think I kind of knew that remotely, but how closely connected these are. These are family members. Sometimes you can even have your greatest trials within your family. I thought, oh, that can be true. That can be true. Here they are going through the desert. They're trusting in God. They're believing God. He's brought them across the Red Sea. They're headed to the promised land, and now they're under attack. They're under attack. But watch what happens. I'm going to read verse 8 to verse 16. It says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Joshua was his understudy, Choose some of our men. And go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Can you imagine doing that at a football game? We could use some help on some of our teams. <clears throat> Why does my mind go there sometimes? I don't know what it is, but it's like, I just think of the power, the power of winning, we're losing. That's what's was, was happening here. Moses is on the hill. These guys are fighting. And uh, usually when they're fighting, they're 20, 20, 20 years of age to 50. So if you're under 20, you're okay. If you're over 50, you're, you don't have to go into battle. But these are the guys out there fighting. Now, look in verse 12. It says, When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So this is all day. There's no way you can keep your hands up all day. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner, or a signal. When his, uh, he's holding this rod up, and, and the rod is, is like a, it's a staff, but it's like the signal, it's the banner. A, a, a banner is, uh, you know, someone in, as far as the, the army goes to be a flag that's waving to, to be able to signal different uh, movements. So Moses built an altar, called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, because 
Hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So the, the title of our series is Show Me a Sign. The times in our lives when we have nowhere else to go but to cry out to God. Lord, I, I need a visible evidence. I need a real evidence that you're there, that you care, that you're going to help me. We find our, ourselves in those spots so many times. And this began uh, to be really the story of Israel unfolding, of, of seeing God step in and help them and rescue them, moving them not just from a geographical location of Egypt to the promised land, but moving them in relationship from independence and, and self-life to a deep abiding relationship with him. That's the movement that God is primarily working in as people. So I want us to look at the, some of the key characters in this and how they responded to this need. I mean, they're in the desert. All of a sudden, you, you have people attacking you that this is what they do. They do war. They are equipped. This is their profession. They are experienced. They're going to wipe you out. You are no match. That's true in our lives. We are no match for Satan. Did you know that? You, you and of yourself, you can't, you can't win that battle. You sense that immediately. Here you have a people that, that they've been serving uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. They, they're workers in the field. They're workers with the livestock. But they are not skilled warriors. And so these people respond. We're going to look at Moses, Joshua, and then Aaron and Hur. What was Moses' response? Um, say, okay, guys, here they come. The enemy's coming. I'm going up on the hill. <laughs> now you think, what's he going to do? Now, someone who didn't know the Lord think this guy's really wacko. I mean, what's he doing? He's going up on the hill, and he's holding up this rod. Well, the rod was the same rod that the Lord, if you go, you go back to the burning bush experience, when he says, throw your staff on the ground and it turned to a snake. He said, pick it up and it turned back to the staff. It's the same rod that was used in the confrontation with Pharaoh and, and the miracles that were performed in Egypt. So the rod is really the rod of God that represents his intervening, his miraculous and supernatural power. That's what this is, this rod. And so he, he goes up on top of the hill, and this is the first time that Moses takes action with the rod without being commanded to do so. Other times God says, take the rod, do this, put it in the, in the uh, Nile, it'll turn to blood, take your rod and do this. This time he acts in faith, believing in this rod, he goes up. And the best I can tell from the physical description of this, he, it says both his hands go up into the air. And, both his, and, and he's holding this rod before, before the Lord. And below him are all of his people. He's got two and a half million people. Now, probably 600,000 of those are warriors. But all the fighting men are out here. They're being attacked by a superior army. This does not look good from a logistical standpoint. And here you have a man whose, whose hands are up, and the rod of God is in his hand. 
And it says that as long as he did that, they were winning. They were defeating the enemy. But when his hands would go down, they'd start losing. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried this, but try just holding your hands up for a long time. I mean, if you do it, you're not going to do it all day. <laughs> and so they would see that this was, this was taking place. What I find is amazing when I, when I look at this picture of him standing with the rod of God over the people, it is a posture of total and absolute dependence upon God. It is the posture of prayer. Now, you could say uh, the posture of prayer is kneeling, but I think open hands, dependent hands, God, I need you. I, we are desperate for you. This is not the hands of drawing on a map, figuring out a plan. See, that's typically what I do. When I get into a, to a tight spot, the first thing I do is I start figuring. I get out the yellow pad, and uh, some of you probably use computers now, but I, get the yellow, I, I start mapping out my plan, you know, Map out your plan, work your plan, work hard, get her done, all that. I think Moses knew at this point in his life, that's not where I start. That's not where I I go. I go to God in complete and absolute dependence upon him. Calling upon God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is calling upon God. It is you speaking to God. Not always eloquent, often desperate, often pleading to God. You know, there are many ways you can, you can talk to God. Um, you can talk to God in praise and thanksgiving, like the Psalms, like David would, would sing psalms of, of praise to the matchless name of God. You ascribe his worth. There's also thanksgiving to God for the works that he's done. There's confession, when I'm confessing my sins or things that I know that are not right that need to be confessed before the Lord but then there's the part about prayer that is just asking. It's just asking. And it's like a child asking his parent, like asking a grandparent. It, it, is, it is request. It is pleading with God because you have a need. And that's where we find ourselves many times with, with the Lord. In our current crisis, my present burden that I'm, I'm carrying, the help that I need. And I find this, that in, in, and I just, and I'm saying this in a, my personal experience. In all my Christian life, there's nothing that has had more effect than prayer. I mean, I look back to the significant moments in my life where I saw God really do something special. And it's always prayer. It's also the hardest thing I do. Honestly. I mean, I have an easier time studying because I'm, I'm getting my books off the shelf, I'm writing things down, I'm creating a sermon, or I'm studying this, or I have something to show for it. When, I, when you pray, it's kind of like I, I, I'm, I'm just total and absolute dependence, which is not an easy thing for me to do. I'd still try to make it happen, try to work it out, try to figure out a plan. And a lot of that's driven by our own pride, our self-centeredness, our, our lack of awareness, that God can do in one moment more than you can do in a lifetime. God can do in one moment more than the, the whole army could do in a lifetime. And so why don't we pray? I think a lot of times we think, well, it's not going to work. Because we, we pray, 
We open our eyes, nothing's changed. So we pray, open our eyes, nothing's changed. Well, that didn't work. But I can tell you this in my experience is that whenever I pray about something, it always takes longer than I want. Always. And along the way, God has twists and turns that I did not expect. But almost every time, God answers prayer. Very rarely can I think of times that God just says no. No, sometimes He changes the way I pray. Sometimes He changes that prayer. But looking through my life, if God has put it on my heart to pray for something, that He directs me in that prayer, it's going to take longer than, than what I realize. And I, and, I, and I tend to want to just give up, to quit praying. But it's the worst mistake I could ever make. I can get weary of praying. But you know, the, the passage in the Gospel of Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, it says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks, receives. And he that seeks, find. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened to him. Now, an interesting translation of that verse uh, in, in the tense of it. It literally says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. That's the idea. It's not just ask, seek, and knock. It's keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Never, never let up. It is the first thing we ought to do in any crisis, any difficulty, any problem. The first thing we do is to pray. It is the enduring thing. And yes, it is the last thing we do too. But typically for us, it's only the last thing. After I've made all my phone calls, figured all my plans, worked my best, I'm at my wit's end, I can't do anything else, oh, Lord, help me. The first time you have a problem, first time you have a crisis, first time you have a need, you got to pray. And I think in the story of Moses' life, he is, he's exemplary in this. That he, he goes right up to the top of that hill, and he puts his hands up in the air with a rod in his hand. Now, here's a guy who used to be a general in Egypt and defeated an entire Ethiopian army. So the guy knew how to do battle, but he knew that that way was not going to succeed. I say, Lord, help me not grow weary in prayer. Help me not get tired in my prayers. Help me not to just put it off because I don't see anything happening right now in this present crisis. And see, God delights in the fact that I'm seeking His face. My hands are open. They're not full of things except His rod, which is His power, trusting in Him. The greatest work we'll ever do on behalf of people or for ourselves is on our knees in prayer. And I, I've learned that. I've had to relearn that. I'm still learning that. I'm reminded of that. Matt, it doesn't matter if it's parenting. It doesn't matter if it's my marriage. It doesn't matter if it's my work. It doesn't matter if I'm trying to get through a crisis. The most effective thing I can do about any situation is what Moses did. Go to the top of the hill, lift up my hands to the Lord. And I trust in His power and His might to be able to accomplish that. Now you have a second individual that... I like to look at, and his name is Joshua. Joshua will read about more as we get after we finish the first five books of the Old Testament, but Joshua was the understudy of Moses. He was his servant. He was the one who just tended to the needs that Moses had, but he was also a great leader. In verse 13, it says, so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. 
It's interesting that while God called Moses as the leader, the first and foremost thing is to intercede for these people in prayer, that the assignment for Joshua was different. You go and lead these men into battle with a sword. And it says he won the battle with the sword. Now, it's not just imagery or picture that doesn't have any context. All through Scripture, God's Word is described as a sword. As Craig's been preaching through the armor, he talked most recently about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so God's Word is the weapon that we use in fighting the enemy, the Word of Truth. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. God gives us His Word, and we have His Word before us, and His Word is truth. In 2 Timothy 3 and, and verses 16 and 17, it says that all Scripture is inspired of God. In other words, when I, when I look at the Bible, and it's not just what, you know, my opinion of it, it's what God, it's, it's self-attesting, it's, it's declared by God Himself, this is my Word, that it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is useful and helpful. I remember this last, was it a couple of weeks ago, I, I had heard this about a particular church that uh, took a position on, on some issue, and I thought, how could they do that? How could they, how could they take that position and still believe the Bible? Because the position was completely in contradiction to what the Bible teaches. So I went on their website, and it says... Uh, their view of the Bible. They said, the Bible can be helpful. It can be helpful. And I thought, you know, if, if that's all I believed about it, and I had it there with a bunch of other books, I would feel pretty helpless. But the, the Bible attests to this, this is the Word of God. It is truth. And it is practical. It is relevant. It is, it is useful for you. And it gives you everything you need to follow the Lord. He gives us everything that we need. And so when you think about Joshua's position, uh, you know, Moses is up there on the hill sitting on the rock. <laughs> okay, Joshua is out here in the forefront of battle with a sword in his hand. I mean, his life is at risk. I don't know if I'd like that. But the confidence that Joshua had was not in his fighting ability, but in the Lord. The sword that is the Word of God given to us. Now, I've often, I think when I was younger, looked at this book as a book to understand, to know, to have knowledge. But God never gave us this book to inform us. He gave it to transform us. God gave His words to change your life. And typically, His word, when you're, when you're having your time in the morning or time at evening or time whenever you can just read your Bible, God calls you to obedience, doesn't he? You had that happen to you where you're reading along and you go, oh, oh, I'm going to find something else to read. <laughs> you go there and say, oh, oh. And I find this true, especially when my heart's open. If my heart's resistant, I probably don't see it as much. But if I say, Lord, I want to do whatever you want me to do. Uh, God calls you to change. God calls you to obey. God calls you to respond. 
Sometimes to go reconcile relationships or some, to go forgive someone or to go take action to do something. But God's Word is designed that way as, as transformational in our lives. And you say, well, I don't know everything in the Word. I don't understand. And, and basically, what He's calling us to do is to obey what we know. You know enough. <laughs> you know enough. And there's always more to learn. But I, but I have found that it, it's typically true with Christians that are not growing. It's not because they don't know enough. It's because they don't obey enough. You, I've seen guys that have been through all kinds of religious education and they got degrees like a thermometer. And, um, but they're not, they're not spiritual people because it's all head knowledge. When God calls us to respond, to act. When I, when I, when I read 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. I think, ooh, am I patient and am I kind? Like I tell people, I can't even go any further. I'm still working on those two <clears throat> to be that kind of person. But, but God is calling us to obedience. And, and the Word of God will defeat the enemy. The Word of God will defeat the enemy. Truth running through your mind helps you to think right. Truth shows you what to do. Truth leads you in the right way. Truth keeps you in step with God. Truth is like the dagger, the the knife, the sword that defeats the enemy. And so the more we wash over our mind, wash over our lives, God's Word, and obey God's Word, He's going to bless that. I think all of this is a part of what God is doing to bring victory for these people. Prayer is first and foremost obedience to the Word of God because He says, choose the men, go out and fight. Okay? (laughs) But it doesn't look like we're going to win this. Choose your men, go out and fight. That's enough word to know what to do. Typically, when God calls me to action and to obey, I don't want to do it. (laughs) It, it, It's just kind of like, Lord, that's not the way I would plan that. But this is what Joshua did. He obeyed the Lord. Now, the last two people, Aaron and her, I think probably the most interesting for me in this. You have Moses who's teaching us to pray, and Joshua is teaching us to obey the Word, to do what we're to do in action. But then you have Aaron and her. So what did they do? Well, they got a rock, put it under Moses, let him sit down, held his arms up. I mean, that did not make headlines, probably. These guys are not the spectacular leaders that we read about Moses, you say, well, what they did was support, assistance. They just, they just helped. But it, but it is just as critical when you think about it as what everybody else did. Let's say Moses, with the rod of God in his hands, great faith and trusting in God, holds the rod up. Joshua's out there charging the enemy with a sword, and they're destroying the enemy. It's taken a while. Whew. <laughs> okay. And pretty soon, the arms are faltering. What does it say happened when his arms went down? They started losing. They started losing. So my point is, Aaron and her are just as important in this situation as Moses and Joshua. But all they're doing is helping. They're just... I'm, I'm, and, and it was like obvious. Okay, he's struggling to keep his arms up. It's not like we we have to try to figure this out. Moses needs help. 
We see what's happening. We're losing when his arms are going down. We just go in. It's You see a need, you go help. Aaron and her. What do you think is probably the, the least recognized position in football? Probably the offensive line, except when they get called for holding. You think, think about this. Okay, you've got a quarterback who's the best in the world. And he has got a horrible offensive line. What's the game going to look like? I remember one time I heard this uh, on, it's on the professional level that these uh, linemen were so tired of hearing their quarterback get on their case that, that one time they got up to the line and they looked at each other like this and they just let everybody through. <laughs> Boom. Now, I, don't, I don't know if that team really gelled after that. <laughs> but, you know, you think those offensive linemen, they say that offensive linemen are some of the smartest guys out there on, on, because they got to know all the plays. But, but if you don't have that line, you're not going to have a good quarterback. It may not be as popular it may not be as recognized, but it, but it is important. And I think this, that, that one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture is in 1 Corinthians 12 when it describes the body, the church. The, the, and, I, and I think of the, like our family here is a church as a body. And it says the head is Christ. He's central. We get all of our signals from Christ. But you have the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the hands, the feet. And every part is significant. And you shouldn't say, well, because I'm a foot, I want to be a hand. Or, I, you know, if I, I'm a nose, I want, I want to be an eye. No, every part of the body is necessary. And when part of the body is hurting, the whole body feels it, Right? And, and so this is the way we function together. And what I think is so beautiful about Aaron and her is that, that, that they're not the notable leaders like Moses and Joshua. They're in a supportive role, but it's just as essential to see this accomplished. And I thought this too, that for a healthy, vibrant community of believers, of, of, of how we grow, you can't grow without prayer. You can't. You can't grow without God's Word. And you really can't grow without community, without other people. And I think we kind of live in, in, a, in a country, in a nation, and we're kind of people that we're very individualistic. And so we kind of keep to ourselves. I read my Bible, and I pray, and I do this, and I do this. But I don't really let anybody in. Why? Because it's probably risky, and I don't know why I want to do that, and, you know, and people know my weaknesses. And so what we do is we have all these little individuals floating around in their own spiritual bubbles. And we're not really helping each other. And every one of us needs encouragement. We need help. We need support. I was reading a book recently on the Navy SEALs, and they talked about their training in uh, San Diego. I've been, I've been down there before on the Coronado Beach and been able to look at a distance while I was eating my ice cream. Uh, these guys are... <laughs> These guys are, I mean, they're, they're running into the waves and they're running back out, rolling in the sand, running back in the waves, running back, rolling in the sand. And I'm thinking, man, oh, man, that's just like watching these guys prepare. You know, a SEAL team is usually 32 guys, and it breaks down to four different squads. They have uh, 32 and then two platoons and then 
There are four squads total, and each each one of those squads has has eight men, and all of them are skilled in all the areas, but some of them are especially skilled in certain areas. Like you, you have a medic, and you have a communications guy, you have a weapons person, you have you have someone who's your your lead diver and and uh, the lead jumper when you're going out of airplanes. So, but there's there's one person that knows more than everyone else, and they do a lot of cross training. And part of part of the development of that eight, that squad, and, and you've probably I don't know if you've seen the movie or watched uh, or read the book uh, Lone Survivor, but you see the, these these guys they they'll die for each other. I mean, they will die for each other. They'll jump on the hand grenade. They they, they and they will not leave a guy behind. Part of what they do in their training is they have this their raft. Their, it's like their boat. So you've got this this raft, and they're all running with it. You know, they're running down the beach. They're running down the beach, running out in the water, running back. And typically, one of the guys, if he's sick or he's hurt, the rest of the guys got to pick up the slack. Everybody's picking up the slack. And so you learn to work together. Everybody's working together through through this. And so by the time that they're headed out into to real combat. And to, to real conflict, they are so committed to be helping pick the other person up. Now, this is, this is my experience, and particularly with men, since I probably work with men more than I do with ladies, but with men. We're not real good at that. Um, we're not real good at getting past football and work and hunting and fishing and the weather. We're not real good at getting beyond that. Like, how you doing? Like, how you're really doing? Well, you expect me to open up to you? We feel like there's risk. I feel awkward. Um, I don't need anybody's help. And so we, we back away. And, and I feel like this is, this is part, and we shared with us in our men's conference last week, is this part we need to really be strengthened to be able to, to have like that SEAL team mentality. It's like that body mentality that when we see a need, we're able to support and help like Aaron and her. There are going to be times where you see a guy, it's obvious that someone's struggling. You know, and you can look the other way, but if someone's hands are going down, they're getting, getting weak under the strain of what they're trying to do, which happens all around us, be alert, be sensitive. Step in, be able to hold up their arms. And I think when, when, I, when I look at when that, when that begins to take place, you have an incredible health. And at the end of the day, here's, here's what took place is that they, they won the battle. Ecclesiastes 4.12 is a verse I thought of, of this. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know, you take three pieces of rope and you wind them together. It's, it's a lot stronger. And this is what God has done in facing a, a warfare, a spiritual warfare. So when you, when you face the difficulties coming up this week, stresses, problems, difficulties, crisis situations, disappointments, how do you respond to that? Well, I think as Moses, we pray. Like Joshua, we obey what we know. We, ob- we obey the word of what we know. When we see someone else along the way that needs help and encouragement, we're there for them, and we lift them up. And I think that, that more than just the physical battle that they actually won, the Lord's given us a spiritual lesson. He's given us a spiritual lesson 
When we face the difficult times, this is the way God works. And He delights when we need Him. We del- he delights when we lift up our hands. He, he delights when we look to His Word to obey it. And He delights when we care for one another to be able to support them. And this is part of the process of God bringing us through to maturity and developing our lives. And my prayer is, is I just kind of challenge you today, is how active are these in your life? Prayer, the Word, and helping others. Because this is, God, this is the way God's designed for us to be able to function in a healthy, vibrant body. You know, the very last part talks about this. Um, Moses built an altar. He said, write on the scroll something to be remembered. So that's why I titled my message, Something to be Remembered. Um, write it down. Moses is going to write this whole story down. So Moses will remember this. And the amazing work that God did to tell to your children, that they remember it, to tell to their children. But not only will they remember the story mom and dad told, they'll also come to know the same experience when they go through a difficulty. They realize, too, at the end, my banner, the banner over me, the banner that's high, the signal is the Lord. It's the Lord. Let's bow together as we pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that in the times that stress our lives, times of warfare and battle and spiritual oppression, that you're there. And you desire for us to lift up our hands in prayer to seek your face. You desire for us to obey your word and what we know. You desire for us to link our arms together to help each other. As we've read about this morning, Lord, I pray as we read spiritual lessons through Scripture that point us to to you, that we'd find the joy and the sufficiency that Christ has made this possible. Lord, thank you for being the access to that throne, for being the living word, for being the one who completes all things. And we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.